The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm here with Dr. Joseph Piper, and we're going to be handling some of your questions today that you've been submitting to us over the last couple of months. Dr. Piper, before I dive into some announcements, would you open us with a word of prayer? I will. Zach, thank you. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we bless your holy name and ask that you would be lifted up this day in our thoughts and affections, and that even as we discuss matters theological and practical from the scriptures and the standards, that your spirit would illumine our understanding and that you, Lord, would be exalted even in our thinking and our answering, that we would take every thought captive in obedience to Christ and that we would not be conformed to the world but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so be honored in this discussion now for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Before we dive into our questions, I do want to give a couple of announcements about things going on here at the seminary. As many of you are aware, we're getting ready to launch into our fall 2017 semester. We have 20 uh, new students slated to begin with us this fall. In addition uh, to them, we also have a number of men, uh, about two or three, who are hoping to enroll with us this winter and spring. And those are just the guys who have finished our applications, been accepted by our faculty, and um, and indicated their interest in enrolling. There are others besides who are still working on their applications. So my request to you, dear listeners, is that you would pray for these men, especially our men coming in from abroad. We have six new international students joining us for the first time this fall, uh, joining the other six uh, international students who are going to be continuing their program as returning students. If you are in the Greenville area, we give you extend to you a warm invitation to our convocation, which is to be held on Friday, August 18th at 7 p.m. Um, next door to the seminary in the Academy of Arts. They've opened up their auditorium to us uh, to use for convocation, and there's plenty of room for you to come and join with us. There will be a reception in the seminary commons after the ceremony is completed. We have one of our graduates, Pastor Matt Holst of Shiloh OPC in Raleigh, North Carolina. He'll be delivering the convocation address, and uh, we look forward to seeing some of you, our dear friends, there. Dr. Piper, do you have any other announcements? I do. Let me <clears throat> piggyback on the international student announcement, Zach. We're going to have students this year from all over the world, from Africa, uh, Peru, Brazil, the uh, Canada, uh, Korea, India. We're very excited. And we've always had a commitment to international students, particularly those who come from uh, more destitute areas and struggling uh, Presbyterian backgrounds. Not only do we waive their tuition and fees, but whatever they cannot provide for living expenses, we commit to providing. Now, we've sent a letter out uh, just in the last few days uh, it's, it's a special missions uh, fundraising appeal. And I'd like our listeners to think about this. Maybe you don't get the letter. For about $100,000 a year, you can send an American missionary to language school. And within a couple of years, he should have the basis of language to be able to begin to minister somewhat effectively in a foreign culture. For $100,000, you can put one of these nationals through Greenville Seminary. And it helps us because we're not having to bear the brunt of covering his tuition. Uh, you're helping him by paying for his living expenses. So I'd like you to really prayerfully think about what you can do to help uh, donors who are listening above your regular giving, uh, non-donors who love missions. This is a great opportunity to be involved. Now, it's not that we want to quit sending uh, American missionaries. These guys come to seminary and end up recruiting classmates uh, to go back with them. And so it's basically a win-win situation. But it gets effective pastors in countries around the world that often are in very small and struggling situations. 
so prayerfully uh, think about helping us. We also, in that program, that enables me and other faculty members to go to places that could not afford to bring us and teach. Uh, And we often go there and teach free. I go to Nigeria, and I I will work a week there. Uh, The missions fund pays for the travel. The church puts me up, but there's no... I wouldn't ask a stipend for them. Uh, They are a a poor and struggling church. So there's lots of other things that we can do as well to extend the kingdom through this missions offering. So prayerfully think about that. Dr. Piper shared the figure of $100,000 to send an American missionary abroad, and that includes uh, his language instruction and his uh, time raising support here stateside, and then as well as going out into the field for that first year to establish something, to make those uh, first contacts with people abroad. Well, that'll be after language school for many of them, though. That would Not be even first contacts. This is true. And uh, those figures are available, I think, LifeWay, did a, uh, a report on that. I, if you're interested in fact-checking us, you can contact me. I'll show you the source that we found. For $100,000 and one year's time, we'll be training 12 men this year. Um, they're Actually, what we've committed to extending to them in scholarship and support is a little bit less than $100,000. So you can really take part in a, in a huge uh, initiative to reach the nation's with Greenville Seminary. So enough of, of that. We'll move into our questions now. Our first question comes from Atlanta, Georgia. Our friend Dan Phillips asks the following. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a bit of a situation. I want to lay out all of the context for you. He asks, my wife has chosen to remove all grains from her diet for some very particular health reasons. We are now trying to decide how she can participate in the Lord's Supper. Our church serves homemade bread made with grains. I know the bread is blessed and set apart, so I don't think it is appropriate for her to bring her own grain-free substitute. How would you recommend we handle this issue? I know there are grain-free options such as matzah out there, but should we expect the church to change to something else for us? Also, will you comment on the proper method of handling leftover communion bread and wine? As I have seen, some give it to children to eat afterwards, while some argue that it is set apart for that particular use and should be discarded. Along the same lines, we once had a church member who was allergic to grapes. I remember them bringing a cup of water as a substitute. How should someone handle this issue? Dan, it's a timely question as health concerns have become so much more evident in our churches. Let me um, me give a kind of a line of reasoning here. If your wife, in in your situation has removed grains from her diet. Now, my wife uh, has cut back a lot as well for health reasons, but she still takes the regular unleavened bread uh, at, at communion, and that doesn't cause any difficulty for her. If a doctor's removed her or if she is uh, gluten intolerant, then it becomes a bit more of a serious uh, issue. And I think the best—well, there's two solutions, and, and I don't think one's preferable over the other— we have a church here in town, an OPC church, that has gone to um, home-baked, gluten-free bread in communion. And it's very tasty, and you don't know the difference. Uh, and so we can get that recipe uh, to your church if they were interested. The other that option that I know churches use will be to have... Uh, a one plate with gluten-free or grain-free, have rice bread or something like that. And the people that want to use that would sit in a particular place in the church uh, on the Lord's Day, or if you're coming forward for communion, you can come forward in that way. So those are two ways to uh, deal with that situation. Plus, if it's not a, a serious medical issue, then she could partake. But your insights are very good, um, she should not be bringing her own uh, bread. And the matzah crackers really are intolerable. You really want some, you want bread and you want something you can really chew. In fact, nine-tenths of our churches use two smaller pieces anyway. The, the communion is supposed to be coming to our senses. And we get these little pieces of bread and little thimbles full of wine. Let me take the wine next. <clears throat> that is a, a bit more difficult. I think it is wrong to substitute another beverage in the place of the fruit of the vine. Christ is very, very distinct about the fruit of the vine. 
again, <clears throat> I would experiment. I would think that a little sip of wine in most cases is not going to cause any great difficulty. Uh, the wine is probably going to be more healthy than the grape juice. So another good reason to use wine in communion. But if a person cannot tolerate it in any way whatsoever, then I think they simply to abstain uh, from the cup. It would be the, uh, the probably the wisest course of action uh, to take and pray that God would take away the intolerance. As to the <clears throat> dealing with the leftover elements, I also have witnessed uh, churches where they allow the children to eat afterwards. And I have a couple of reasons that I'm opposed to that. One is this whole idea of consecration. So in my consecration prayer, I ask that God would separate these elements from everyday common use to the special use of the sacrament. Now, and probably in the Scottish tradition, they don't even pray that type of consecration prayer. Others will say, well, yes, they pray the prayer, but after the service, the elements revert back to their normal use. But I think they have been set aside. But the second thing is with the children, we're teaching them a very bad view of the Lord's Supper by letting them uh, finish off the bread or if it's grape juice, the grape juice or whatever after the service. It, be, it just puts it in the area of a plaything. And then their little minds, that is going to carry over to the seriousness of the sacrament. So I'm very opposed to letting children uh, have those things. I've always, in my churches, we've had provisions where uh, an elder or deacon would oversee the disposal of uh, any leftover bread. The wine can be put back in, in the wine bottle, but set aside as only for communion and then be used uh, at the next service. I grew up in a church where we would have communion every Sunday night, and the it was a common cup and bread. The elders and the pastor had us practicing intinction, so we weren't drinking from the cup together. We don't need to get into the issue of intinction today. We've done that already. Yeah, we've addressed that before. At least Dr. Piper has addressed that before with Bill. But they would um, they would actually save... The grape juice. It wasn't wine. They would save intention with grape juice. <laughs> yes, intention with grape juice, and they would save it. And would they, it there were times. Uh, the second time they used it, sometimes it tasted like wine because of the crumbs. But we would always eat the loaf of bread afterwards, and it, it was it was not intended to be disrespectful to the Lord, but it was irreverent. We us guys would fight over who gets the rest of the loaf of bread. I mean, it was a playful thing, but. It's um, something looking back on that I wish there was more wisdom in that situation as much as I appreciated uh, the pastor and elders of that church. We can move on to our next question. This comes from David Prussia, and David asks, In your experience, is there an ideal size for a church congregation? How should a church pursue new converts and maturity? And, and what I think David means is how how should a given church balance the pursuit of new converts and the pursuit of maturity of those who have already professed faith in Christ and joined the membership of the church. Good, David. I thank you for this question. It's one of my um, hobby horses. I th would prefer to have a lot of strong, uh, moderate-sized congregations where there can be good pastoral oversight in these uh, Mega churches, and so because of that, there's a couple of issues involved in terms of the ideal size of the congregation. One is it's a congregation that the pastor or pastorate and associate pastor can uh, be annually in the homes of the people, maybe alternating, uh, and then the elders as well being in the homes of the people. Pastoral visitation, both by the ruling elders and by the pastors or the ministers, I think is is a vital but lost part of uh, pastoral ministry. So we need to keep the church at a level then where there can be that kind of oversight and fellowship. Normally that's going to be uh, 200, 250. Um, so ideally then what a church does, if it really wants to plant churches successfully, is grow to about 275 
are 250 to 3, at which point they take 50 to 75 uh, fairly sound family units, our members, uh, with, Lord willing, at least uh, one or two elders and a deacon or two, and then start the second church in that way. This way you're not starting a fledgling church. You haven't weakened the mother church to a degree that her ministries are cut back, and you've got a daughter church that's going to be able to hit the ground running. There's a good example of this in, in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, where Matthew's OPC did that and started Redeemer um, OPC. Uh, one of our graduates, Cliff Blair, is the pastor of Redeemer. I think it was a mission church for one week because it already had elders and everything, so they were examined by the presbytery, and Cliff was installed as pastor, and it now is a very sound, thriving spiritual congregation. So I think that's that's the way to go. <clears throat> so 175 to 225 or so, I think, is the good size. One, one of the responses to that is, well, but the megachurch can do so much more. And that's true unless you want to think and behave like a Presbyterian. If we have three uh, strong churches with uh, 175, 200 members each, and they function Presbyterially, they can put a worker on a college campus. They can put a worker in the local high school. They can go together for their missions program and do things. And so then you've got the best of both worlds. You've got pastoral oversight. And you've got the resources of Presbyterianism. This also helps us then to keep this pursuit of new converts and mature Christians so that uh, we are planting churches in order to reach new areas in the neighborhood. And it helps the church keep a mindset of being extroverted and not introverted. And so we want to see new converts in both congregations. And I think that this idea of church daughtering is the best way to go about that. I know there's a church in town here that is getting to the point now where they either have to think of planting another congregation or building up their sanctuary. And I had heard from one of the elders that they were considering expanding the sanctuary rather than planting another church. And I approached them about it. Being from Philadelphia, you know, if a church gets that big, it's very clear, oh, just plant a new church. There's such a need for strong Reformed churches in the Philadelphia area. I mean, there are, there are many up there, but it's a huge area. And I asked him about doing that, and he said to me, where would we plant, Zach? I mean, look around. And he named all the surrounding areas and the different places where people are coming in from. And there are already churches in our denomination that, are um that are in those neighborhoods in those areas and so you'd end up if you were to plant into those places you'd end up on top of somebody else when you're in a church in that situation where you have a presbytery that has saturated the area geographically at that point is it permissible then to just grow i mean maybe not permissible but even ideal to continue growing in, in the current setup, rather than planting a daughter church. You, you get what I'm asking, Dr. Piper? I do. I don't think that overrides the, the pastoral needs of having smaller congregations. So that if a church feels compelled to do that, they need to have associate pastors and divide up that pastoral care. Or maybe then it's every three years that uh, the, you have three pastors, they divide the congregation uh, amongst themselves, and so everyone will be in every home every three years. Every home will have a pastoral visit from the minister every year and then really elder. So we have to get, I think, creative if we're going to do that. On the other hand, a church five miles apart is not problematic. This, I think, brings us back to the question of balance. If we print neighborhood churches and we develop what we teach here at Greenville Seminary, the parish model, of evangelism and church planting. I mean, for me, the ideal is to have a church in every neighborhood that people could walk to. I don't think you can have too many really reformed churches in an area. I think particularly if we go into an area with strong families with the intention of reaching that neighborhood and really seeking to bring people to Christ 
that the churches would grow and prosper. Next question. This comes from Ethan McConnell here in Greenville. He asks, should churches feel an obligation to use the common cup, or can we mark that off as mere preference? And the question was seconded by Ryan as well, Ryan Simpson. You know, this is a question that has been up for discussion a good bit more lately. And actually, there's the uh, book by a historian, and my mind just went blank. He was the outside reader for my dissertation. And it's dealing with Puritan worship. And he he pointed out that in development of Puritanism, there was this clash over do we have to mimic the circumstances of the Lord's Supper, or is there a freedom of administration? And I think there's a freedom of administration. So that historically there have been three approaches. Of course, the Anglicanism, uh, and this is what Calvin did then, people came forward and took from the cup and took the bread. Zwingli developed the method, as best as I can discern, of distributing the elements to the people as they were sitting in the pew. And the some of the Puritan churches, the Scotch churches, and the Continental Reformed churches thought that we had to be sitting at a table together uh, to have the Lord's Supper. And there are people that argue for the table, argue that's what Christ did and that's what we have to do. Well, in the first place, they weren't sitting at a table, they were reclining at a table. Second place, they all were there. In these churches, there are multiple seatings. Only in a small congregation can you have all the congregation at the table at one time. And so it really becomes a bit self-defeating. Third, if you're an adherent of frequent and preferably weekly communion, there's no way you can have tables unless you're a little small church. Um, you can have service communion at the table every week. So I find the table, although I've been in churches that have done it and it's a nice experience, and you can use the common cup at a, at a table, Uh I find if you're really committed to the congregation having more of a unity in the partaking of the supper, um, that the table is not really effective. The administering the sacrament to the people in the pew, and of course having them wait and take the sacrament uh, elements at the same time, uh, does exhibit the unity but it then militates against some other elements, particularly the common cup. I like the common cup. Even if we don't drink it at the same time, which would be difficult, <laughs> that was a joke, it, it does express the, the one cup concept of the Lord's Supper. There's one church here in Greenville that has the common cup. I like what they do. Uh, people are squeamish, but a, um, a sterling silver cup with the uh, the lip wiped with a linen napkin is germ-free. So it's not a bit of problem, particularly if you're serving some good wine. So <clears throat> what they do is you come forward, and uh, one elder, you know, they have a common loaf. You break off your piece of bread in the loaf. The other uh, uh, elder has the cup, and you take a sip of the cup. And you simply come up one aisle, partake, and you go back and sit down and meditate. They then have individual cups for those that are not comfortable drinking out of the common cup, so nobody would be disenfranchised, so to speak, by that method. So I like that. Um, I don't think we're going to see it happen anytime soon, but I do think it's a matter of preference. So there are strengths and weaknesses in each method but I think that the um, either the common cup coming forward or the serving the people in the pews are going to be the best way if we're going to have frequent communion. Thank you, Dr. Piper, and thank you, Ethan and Ryan, for both uh, registering questions dealing with the issue of the common cup in the Lord's Supper. Our next question comes from Lee Jones, and Lee asks, Does liturgy have a place in the private devotions of a Christian? 
How can it be um, used outside of corporate worship? Thank you, Lee. Um, it's a very good question. There's a fairly popular book uh, by one of our really reformed guys in the PCA that uh, advocates certain liturgical things in family worship. And I think that uh, no, there's not a place. Now, we need to define our terms. I should have started there. Anything that we do in the worship of God is a, is a, uh, is a liturgy. But salutations, benedictions, obviously sacraments, none of these things have a place in private or family uh, worship. So in private or family worship, we do the things. We should only do things that are acceptable in public worship according to the regular principle. So we're going to read Scripture, and we're going to uh, pray. Uh, but because it is also an educational time with our children, we're going to teach and discuss what we read and pray. And we can sing. But in terms of importing a church liturgy into private worship, I think that we ought not to do that. Our next question comes from David Austin, and David asks, is it appropriate to have the American flag, or any flag for that matter, thank you, David, anywhere around the pulpit in a sanctuary or auditorium of a church building, or banners as well? And I and Dr. Piper, even if we're renting a building from another church that uses it in their in their service, or we're renting from a school that has it in an auditorium. Um, is it appropriate to leave it there? Now you just confounded everything. I did. <clears throat> Let's take the first question. No, it's not appropriate to have an American flag uh, in the place where we are worshiping God. Uh, we are not, as a church, uh, citizens of America. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and I think that uh, these. Uh, Flags uh, are inappropriate. They can be jingoistic. And even some churches have the Christian flag. In fact, in the South, all the conservative churches uh, that I knew as a youth had the American flag and the Christian flag. I, I really can't say there's anything per se wrong with having a, a Christian flag uh, in, uh, in the center of worship. Is there anything right about having a Christian flag in worship? I guess what I'm saying is it's probably an adiaphora. It could be a matter of, of Christian liberty or conscience. Which brings us to the other part of the question, not your part, but uh, his part, banners. So a banner that has uh, a scripture verse on it, uh, is that wrong? No. Again, I think it becomes a matter of, of Christian liberty. For the elders to decide, we would like to display some key uh, verses on attractive banners. Uh, I think that's okay. What you don't want are these liturgical colors hanging from the pulpit, which some of our, even our Presbyterian churches are doing according to the colors of that particular uh, Sabbath. Now, as to your follow-up question, it, it depends on what your host uh, expects out of you. If you can let them know, do you mind if we remove the flag, and they say we don't mind, then you, of course, could remove it. But you should be respectful of the people from whom you rent. Now, we were renting from a Seventh-day Adventist uh, congregation. They're really keen on the Fourth Commandment, but also very keen on having pictures of Christ. And so we, uh, it was in the foyer, but we just hung a sheet over it. I uh, didn't... We didn't take it down. We didn't think we had the prerogative. I know other churches have removed such things on the Sunday uh, as, the, as, the, as the congregation gathers. But we do have to respect the peoples uh, from whom we rent. But if we have any control, then we shouldn't have flags, and at least the American flag, and we shouldn't have pictures of Christ. What about in a funeral service, Dr. Piper? If you have a funeral uh, that is taking place in a stated worship service context, um, do you remove the flag of uh, that's draped over the coffin of a veteran, a military veteran, or no? No, I think that's very different. I mean, the flags over the coffin, although most often the flag service takes place at the graveside and not inside the uh, church building. And the easiest way to avoid that is to have a graveside service first 
and then have a memorial service, and then you don't get yourself into those kind of situations. The reason I ask is, in case anyone's interested, what spurred on that question, Otto Whitaker wrote a biography about Bill Hill, not William F. Hill Jr., our our dear friend, but Bill Hill, the founder of Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship, and he actually made national headlines at one point because he refused to allow uh, the coffin um, containing the corpse of a veteran into his sanctuary as long as the flag was draped over it. He demanded that it be removed and um, made national headlines, was called all kinds of names by all kinds of people for it. And I think maybe in retrospect he realized it it wasn't it wasn't the hill to die on so to speak but um nevertheless admirable convictions that man had so moving on the reverend scott cook of second presbyterian church asks this question is it appropriate for a minister to give the benediction outside of a stated worship service say at a graveside service i'm probably inconsistent scott but i think yes I think of a couple of situations. I prefer a wedding not to be a worship service because there'd be things that people want to do in a wedding that would not be appropriate in a worship service. But I think it's very nice for the minister to pronounce a benediction at the end of the service, and the same then at the graveside. It's still an act of office, just as we may preach outside of stated worship services, and ought to, as we have opportunity, I think we can, uh, as office of minister, acting in that capacity, pronounce benedictions in these formal occasions, such as weddings or funerals. Thanks, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Reverend John Blevins of Covenant PCA in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And John, who's one of our graduates, asks, how can pastors purposely build stronger relationships with the fellow teaching elders in their presbyteries? Good to hear from you, John. I think your uh, co-pastor there, Dr. Wilborn, is one of the better models for how to do that. As he engages uh, these men, and you simply go out to eat with one or two men for breakfast or lunch and begin to build relationships in that way. If someone's closer and couples are of similar age to uh, do something together then as families. I think the intentionality is the important thing. One of the pastors who was here in the Greenville area started a periodic luncheon at his church that was for presbyters just to come and be together. He's left, but I think that another church now has at least at one time picked up that practice for, on one occasion. And then I think it is good to pray by name for the men in your presbytery and their churches and their ministries. So those would be some things that I think will help. And don't always sit with the same men at presbytery at lunch. You know, when you get presbytery, try to sit with people you would not normally be around. These are all very good practical recommendations. And I think uh, if we think creatively about who in our presbytery has experience with a particular issue, when we face a particular issue, um, we should, after prayerful consideration, reach out to those men, um, even if they differ in other points of ministerial practice. Would that be a fair? I think so, yes. And when young men come in and have weaknesses in their examination, I think it's good for older men to get, get with them for lunch or breakfast or coffee in the afternoon or whatever. And uh, just to interact with them about that and try to lead them into sounder convictions. Our next question comes from Thomas Feel, uh, with a silent P in his surname, and he asks, what is the connection between the doctrine of election and lordship? He has another question after that, but let's tackle this one first. What's the connection between election and lordship, Dr. Piper? Thanks, Thomas. <laughs> I think the uh, connection is found in what God says about uh, Abraham, when he is, is kind of a soliloquy, and uh, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, in verse, uh, Genesis 18, 18, Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then verse 19 is very appropriate. For I have known him so that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. 
Now that I've known him is how the Bible describes election. In fact, the New American Standard actually uh, translates or interprets that term, I have chosen him. So God is, is, is reflecting that Abraham is elect. But notice there are two purpose statements. So God says, I have chosen him or known him so that, and that says God will fulfill his promises in him, so that, um, well, excuse me, the first of that is he will teach his children and raise them in the faith. And the second so that purpose statement is that God's promises will be fulfilled. So here we see the clear relationship between the election and covenant. That covenant purposes are worked out in election through the means of covenant instruction. This shows us the clear relationship between election and human responsibility in terms of fulfilling God's purposes. So if we take that step toward your question, election and lordship, we are elected, Paul says, unto holiness in Ephesians chapter 1. And in Thessalonians, he says that our salvation is through uh, faith and sanctification. And he ties that into uh, election as well. And so the Bible clearly relates uh, God's sovereign election of his people to uh, lordship and sanctification. And so if the Bible does that, then I think we are to... Uh, do so as well. Uh, the Thessalonians passage just came to mind, and I'm trying to find it here very quickly. And this actually relates to a question asked by another listener concerning the. And this is from Mitch Hembry. Thomas, we'll get to your second question in a moment. Concerning the doctrine of election, why does God positively intervene in the lives of the elect to rescue them from their corrupt condition, only to then have them struggle mightily with their own sanctification? Is it connected to the idea that we must suffer for Christ's sake and that this is part of God's will for our lives? Okay, yeah, in a sense that it, it does relate. So we'll try to unpack them uh, together or in consequence. So election is unto holiness. Here it is, uh, First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So just as means, purpose statement is related to Abraham, it is here as well. So that uh, election, of course, you exercise faith in Christ and repentance, and you're to obey. And if you are not obeying, if you're deliberately living in sin, then you have no right to consider yourself at that point converted. That doesn't mean that you're not elect. You can be converted later. But in terms of conversion, uh, a person who's not has no desire for holiness, no struggle against sin, has no grounds to consider himself a, a Christian. So as we go to uh, Mitch's uh, question, uh, now we get into the inscrutable ways of God and that God does leave us some of us to struggle with specific um, weaknesses and temptations in our Christian experience. Uh, he does so in his wisdom. Nobody is sanctified at the same pace. And so uh, God is honored in our struggles. It's through struggles that we do grow in grace and godliness. And God has designed a plan for each one of us. Some, there's an immediate del deliverance from the bondage. Others, there is a progressive deliverance. But the important thing to keep in mind is that sanctification is progressive, and there is a progressive deliverance. And so we have hope in the pursuit of sanctification. If you want reading materials or reading recommendations on this issue of um, election, sanctification, and trials, uh, and tribulations, and struggles against our sin. I would highly recommend that you dig into the Puritans, if you haven't already. They have written extensively on these issues. Just two books. You have Jeremiah Burroughs' The Evil of Evils, which is very helpful in unpacking uh, sin and uh, 
just a, an experimental approach to the doctrine of sin, but then also A Mute Christian Under the Rod by Thomas Brooks. I'm reading that right now, and uh, it's his exposition. I was telling Dr. Piper about it this morning. His exposition on Psalm 39.9, I was dumb, I opened up not my mouth because thou didst it. Very helpful little book so far. So I recommend those to you if you're listening and you're wanting to dig more into this issue of election, sanctification, and... Um, increase in holiness. Moving on to the second question from Thomas Feel, why have churches stopped intercessory prayer? And there's a couple of directions we can go with this, Dr. Pipe, but we could talk about why intercessory prayer has uh, taken a back seat in the corporate worship of the church. We could talk about why prayer meetings aren't really around and general air of prayerlessness in the church. Um, you know, I, I'll leave it up to you to tackle whatever aspect of this um, that's okay. left and, open to Yeah, us. and Thomas, I'll try to answer it from both directions, not knowing exactly what your main concern is. I think that uh, the pastoral praying of our churches has become uh, quite bankrupt in, in so many of our uh, situations because we've not really worked at... Uh, the practice of uh, public prayer. All of our public prayers in worship, now I don't advocate doing them all in one prayer, so I like multiple prayers, but all of our public praying in worship must include all of the aspects that we have in the Lord's Prayer. Now, by intercessory prayer, I'm going to interpret this as you're talking about praying for the kingdom to come God's blessing and revival of his churches and conversion of the lost, blessing on preaching. And this is something that we're instructed to do in the Lord's Prayer. The larger catechism and shorter catechism exposition of the Lord's Prayer are very useful to us there in how to do this. But uh, we're not studying these things, and we're not, again, being intentional. We... The, often the extent of praying in corporate worship is for the sick and the grieving in the congregation, maybe those who are at work, and then we might pray something a bit for the presbytery or uh, for the nation. Our prayers are weak on adoration, a real expression of love and devotion to God. They're weak in thanksgiving. They're weak in doxology. They're weak in confession. So they're weak, obviously, in a lot of areas. So we need to work at uh, praying. I would encourage uh, men and women to get Matthew Henry's method of prayer. There's two versions, the one that Palmer Robertson has edited and the one that uh, Lig Duncan's edited. They're both very useful. And what Henry does is simply go through all the aspects of prayer that we have in the Lord's Prayer and gives you scriptural petitions. Isaac Newton, not Isaac, Isaac Watts, has uh, a helps to prayer. Uh, that's very similar. And then uh, Samuel Miller, a book that we use in the worship course here on public prayer, uh, as well as the chapter by Mickey Snyder in the book uh, Preaching and Preachers, edited by Sam Logan on leading in public prayer. Uh, these are useful resources. Now, as to... There's a, there's a modeling that takes place, and I actually recently had a student say to me, I, I was, I prayed with him at prayer meeting last Wednesday night, and I was very pleased the way he used God's promises to plead with God. And I said, well, no, I've never prayed with a young man that did that. And uh, one of the things he said was, well, you've modeled that for us. So as he heard me pray in chapel or whatever, and he's heard my teaching, uh, he is developing this facility. So in the pulpit, we must pray this way. As we pray this way, our people are going to learn to pray this way in their families, plus we emphasize this intercessory prayer. Then the church needs to have a prayer meeting. I think maybe one of the reasons people have lost interest in prayer meeting, they're tired of sitting around and praying for uh, everybody's physical maladies and Aunt Susie, whom nobody knows but her niece, uh, some malady that, that she has, and there's no, don't get me wrong, we, we ought to pray for all the needs of one another, but the, there's no serious prayer going on according to these petitions of the Lord's Prayer. 
we're not seeing ourselves involved in the life of the church and the expansion of the kingdom. There's no vision. And so we need a prayer meeting. We need a prayer meeting that's devoted to intercessory prayer. Again, helps for pastors are the rubrics in the Westminster Directory of Worship put out by the Westminster Divines, where they give suggestions for the petitions we're to have before and after the sermon. I was in a church where we had no regular prayer meeting. We had um, every 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 other week we would go out and do some intentional street evangelism. We were in a very urban area, and that was great. And we would usually pray after that for any of the contacts that we made, but we didn't have a regular weekly prayer meeting like we do um, at Woodruff Road where Dr. Piper and I attend, or in many in Second Pres downtown and many of the other churches around here. Um, but we would have these seasons of prayer once a quarter or three times a year where we would take out a weekend where people would sign up for an hour or two hours or more and get together and pray over the course of 48 hours. So every hour of the 48 was covered by at least one or two people. Do you think that's a healthy model for a church to pursue to the exclusion of doing a weekly prayer meeting, having these uh, intense, focused seasons of prayer uh, for a whole weekend once a quarter? I don't. Why not? And the primary reason is I think the church Christians should be praying together, and it should be the regular discipline in the church. So I find these things to be really unhelpful. Another thing that came to mind as a businessman, you don't want to depend all year long on three or four big days and <laughs> not have a steady cash flow throughout the rest of the year. And the question I would pose to pastors and elders that want to have seasons of prayer like this to the exclusion of a weekly prayer meeting is, do you believe there's a return on your prayers? Do you believe that God is faithful to answer your prayers in due season, even those that you bring to him week after week after week? I mean, to make it sounds crass, but do you think that, that you need a steady cash flow on the return of your prayers? And I don't mean, um, I don't mean necessarily just money or anything like that, though the Lord does provide for us. So I, 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 Jocelyn and I, my wife and I, we have benefited greatly from the weekly prayer meeting at Woodruff Road. We're so happy to be in a church that has it, and I can't imagine pastoring a church without one, um, except that there be some great providential hindrance, and we'd find some other means to have regular corporate prayer together outside of the worship service. I was at an uh, Orthodox Presbyterian church yesterday in Raleigh, I've gone over there ever since the, they began. I preached a good bit when they were a mission church. And their practice has always been to have their prayer meeting uh, Sunday afternoon before um, the evening service. And, you know, you might, as it grew, you might have uh, even up to 20 people there. There were probably 50 people there yesterday afternoon from uh, 4.45 to about 5.20. Praise the Lord. Praying. And there's an uh, RPCNA church, Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, that does theirs on Sunday nights after the evening service. They actually use a roving mic, and they had 135 at prayer meeting. And it's really strange, but people were being converted in those churches. I wonder <laughs> That's why. That's the return. Yeah, there's a return on our prayers. Dr. Piper, Doug Gates asks, does faith build upon itself? Is inconsistent faith in Christ still legitimate? Well, Doug, I don't quite know what you mean by does faith build upon itself. Unless by that you're saying that faith grows and that the more we exercise faith, the stronger faith becomes. And yes, uh, that's true. And so faith in the promises of God, faith in the midst of trials uh, and temptation, uh, weak faith as it's tested and tried, uh, grows. As to the legitimacy of an inconsistent faith, I would remind our listeners of what our confession says about faith in chapter 14, paragraph 3. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, 
may be often and many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. And so weak faith may receive Christ for salvation. Faith like the grain of a mustard seed. Weak faith taking hold of promises can accomplish uh, great things uh, for God. But weak faith will struggle with lack of assurance and with uh, losses and depression and such. And so our desire is to have our faith grow uh, stronger. And again, the confession says that's ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also and by the ministration of the sacraments and prayer is increased and strengthened. So we're to use the means of grace for the strengthening of faith. And the one caveat to what I've said is what James says, and that is that if you uh, pray with uh, a vacillating faith, that you have no confidence of being heard. So in James chapter 1, when he gives a great promise with respect to uh, wisdom, when he promises that those who, uh, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For for that man ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I think the instability gets here is, do I really need the Lord? Do I need his wisdom or do I not need his wisdom? That's the instability. Do I need help in this? The story of the guy that falls off the... Um, mountain and he's crying out to God for help and his backpack catches on a branch and he says that's okay Lord I'm safe and that's I think more of the idea here weak faith that yes uh, I believe Lord help my unbelief uh, I tremble uh, I pray and I believe and then I wonder has he really heard me um, that's that's sin but it's still faith and I believe God hears that faith and, and wants to nurture it and cause it to grow. Well, I think that brings us up on our time. So our next podcast episode or our next Faith in Practice live recording will be Monday, September 4th at 2.30 p.m. Again, our next Faith in Practice podcast segment will be recorded on Monday, September 4th at 2.30 p.m., we're looking forward to, to being with you again. Please send us your questions. We have many to work through, but if a question is particularly timely, we will address it on air before we tackle some of the older ones like we did today. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me in the studio and for handling our listeners' questions. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to be with you and with our listeners. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.